Guys, we're going to have a great episode today. Before we get into that, I want to thank you guys, the listeners, for all the support that you get. I want to remind you that you can reach out to me on Instagram. If you don't follow, follow it at jscottoutdoors. Uh, feel free to send me a DM. I love uh, corresponding with you guys about your hunts and any questions that you might have. Uh, we're going to have a great episode. I also want to thank uh, the sponsors of this podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com. Cody Nelson, my friend of 20 plus years, he's the glassing guru, the optics authority. He's the ma optics manager over there at GoHunt.com at the gear shop. Uh, you can reach out directly uh, for info or for sales at 702-847-8747. You can also email him at optics at GoHunt.com. He also uh, gets texts from uh, my listeners at on his cell phone, 602-399-3699. Feel free to send him a text if you're looking for a certain tripod or binocular or spotting scope or rifle scope, anything to do with optics. Uh, give Cody Nelson a call or a text. I want to thank GoHunt.com also and remind you guys that the GoHunt maps, the mobile app, um, mapping apps, are now available on iTunes and Android. Uh, they have real 3D. Um, it's awesome, awesome 3D mapping on these mobile apps. Uh, you can get a free trial, a seven-day free trial, by going to gohunt.com forward slash jscott. You can also check in the show notes. I'll have it linked up. You get a seven-day free trial. That gives you access to everything in the Insider as well as uh, let you look at the, the mapping apps uh, both on the desktop and on your phone. Uh, you can also sign up uh, by going to GoHunt.com and just use J. Scott, and that's going to save you $50. Uh, you're actually going to get a GoHunt gift card, $50 GoHunt gift card when you sign up. So go check it out. also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. That's the gear that I wear on all of my hunts. Go to KUIUKUYU.com. Uh, to order the gear right there that are direct to consumer model uh, so that's the only place you can get the gear as well as phonescope.com use the jscott21 promo code and you're going to get a 10 percent discount uh, guys let's get right to this episode and again thanks for listening guys welcome to the J. Scott outdoors podcast today we've got my friend brian rimza brian how you doing i'm good hey, how are you Good. I um, want to talk to you today about, uh, you've got some stuff you want to talk to me about actually with the Arizona Game and Fish and some of the things you've got going with them and working with them. I want to talk to you about that as well as your elk hunt. Um, you had a great elk tag in the state of Arizona and shot a fantastic bull uh, back in September. Tell us about it. Yeah, I mean, I was fortunate this year. Uh Actually, the family was fortunate. My wife, Nicole, managed to draw a unit nine tag uh, with little to no points. And then my dad drew the 18B tag over on the ORO. And uh, I also drew the ORO tag. So we were fortunate to uh, pull some good tags. It was a busy September, to say the least. Uh, between work and school and and hunting, it was pretty crazy. But um we listened to help and it was it was a good deal. And uh, Nicole hunted for twelve days up there in Unit Nine. Um, Chad Woodruff gave us a hand to help us out a bunch, and uh, he was actually there when Nicole shot her bull because I had to come back and go to school because I started my masters in August. And uh, Nicole made a good fifty-one yard shot or shot her bull after twelve hard days of hunting. She definitely earned it. It was a grind, 
And, uh, you know, Unit 9 can be a beast. I know you've got a lot of experience up there. It's just sometimes it's hit or miss whether the cards fall your way or don't. Yeah, and then um, so sh she actually hunted quite a bit on her own. I know you were gone, whether it was your tag or your dad's. Um, you hunted with her, but she did a, quite a bit of work on her own as well. Yeah, she uh, she hunted at least two and a half, three days on her own because I had to come back to go to school uh, two days during those 12 days. And I didn't hunt, get to hunt with my dad because Nicole took priority over that. My dad was in good hands with Corey Richard and Hero Outfitters and those guys up there on the range. So I knew he would be good to go. And uh, she stuck it out, man. It was uh, definitely mentally challenging. We tried to hunt one particular bull for seven days and just between under pressure and things nothing quite came together and she didn't get that bull and we kind of made some adjustments and uh, had some close calls on some good bulls and she ended up killing a solid six-point bull you know her first archery bull so it was it was uh it was a good deal man for sure tell us about the oro man i mean you and i have talked about this over the years oro is just an extremely special place it's roughly three hundred fifty thousand acres of pristine wildlife habitat and i mean there's just a really neat place i've had the opportunity to hunt with my dad on the on the ranch three or four different times over the past 10 years and it's just an exceptional experience i mean it's one of those special places that you get to hunt and there's always some good bulls and there's always some great bulls and i mean it's just good good people up there and you know this was kind of my year to hunt it. I knew I would draw the tag when I put in. I didn't expect Cole to draw a nine tag. And so we had to make do some shuffling and things and make things work. But uh, I was able to hunt the last week of the ORO hunt, which it's a limited opportunity hunt. So rather than a two-week season, it's a three-week season. And uh, I got up there and, you know, the guys had been killing some great bulls and they had been killing them quick. Um, all the hunters before me had hunted like two or three days and were done. Um, and so, you know, the ranch wasn't seeing a ton of pressure because guys were getting on good bulls and killing them. I mean, the, the theme was kind of that everybody was killing solid bulls and they'd have one broke time is what it seemed like. And so I kind of knew going into the third week, my goal was to try and shoot a 370 type bull. And I was hoping that to shoot one that wouldn't be broken. But, you know, I also was realistic and knew that the odds are that some bulls were going to be broke. So I got up there. The day before the hunt started, the day before my hunt started, and uh, the guy I was hunting with was able to find a, you know, really good bull that night and solid six by six. Definitely, you know, it looked like it would definitely fit the bill for what we wanted to do. And he, was he wasn't broke, so I was all in. I got first day chasing him around and got close, but not quite. He was kind of in some more open country. And the nice thing about the RO is, man, is if it's not right, you don't have to push the issue because you know that nobody else is going to come in there and bother him so the next morning i got in there and got in on him close got tight i had his cows at 38 yards and some from 38 to like 55 yards and he just pushed out and came out about 81 yards never really gave me an opportunity to get on him and uh, they bet it up and I, I snuck into him and was just kind of waiting for him to to do something and uh as it turned out, a spike and a raghorn bull ended up going into the herd. It just pushed them out. And so they kind of bumped a little bit hard. So we decided, you know what, let's go look at some other country because we hadn't looked at a ton of country. And a lot of the hunters had been, you know, killing their bulls in the first two or three days. So there's a lot of new bulls moving in. And so we got up on a real high vantage point that night and uh, we're glassing around. And 
and there's bulls everywhere and I glassed up one big bull that was uh, a bell can but he was just a stud and started looking through there and a bull came out and I was like I could only see half of his rack and I was like man he looks pretty good and uh, once I got the full view I was like oh that's a pretty impressive bull he had really big fronts on him and so that uh, the decision was made that I would definitely try and kill that bull in the morning you know again benefit to the ROs, you know what those bulls are going to be. I mean, not that specific bull, but you know they're not going anywhere. And so I got in there that morning, and uh, I was by myself pushing up through some juniper cedar country, and I started from about a mile and a half away trying to make sure I had the wind right. And as I got closer, I could hear the bulls just going nuts. The night before, I'd actually watched the bull um, that I was trying to kill, and the bull ended up killing, getting to fight like three times, and I mean, the whole time he was cringing hoping that he doesn't break a tine or break a beam or and so you know the anticipation that morning was one to try and find him and then two to hope he was still intact and so i was pushing through some country and you know i had spotters up on the hill where the bull was at they couldn't see him and so i was just going off bull's bugle and pushing into that country and i was getting into some oaks and i was getting pretty tight the sun was you know the sun was out now and it was good vision or good visibility and uh, as i was pushing in i had kind of a, a meadow to my to the right of me and i was on the edge of that meadow and out came some cattle from the side of the meadow that i was on and then following them was the bull that i was uh, that i was after and which was fortunate because it was like the second bull i had run into and he was on my side of the, the frenzy and uh we kind of he pushed out to that opening and it was I was 105, 135, which is not quite where I wanted to be. Um, and the cows were pretty content pushing across that meadow away from me. And I was trying to make a decision because I could definitely get junipers and stuff in between me and him to where I could push into the meadow and close the gap. But the bulls and all the other elk on my side would definitely see me. I just wasn't sure how I was going to do that. And about that time, he turned and came back to challenge another bull and when he did that he cut the distance for me and uh he's you know he's all by himself standing out there and uh it was a little bit of a poke but i mean i practiced out to over 100 yards and uh he's standing out there kind of tearing up the dirt and he turned broadside and you know just gave me a good look and i made the decision that i was going to take that shot and I hit him perfect quartering away, um, and then the, the arrow ended up coming out later I, when I found him dead. came out in front of his front shoulder, um, and it went all the way through him. And when it hit him, because it hit him kind of through the guts with the angle it was, he kind of just hunched up and took actually a couple steps closer to me to stop broadside. And I was able to hit him again with a second arrow that was perfect, and uh, he just took off out of there pretty confident with the shots that I had made that the bull was dead. Um, I watched him go for about 100 yards and he went into some thicker juniper stuff and uh, gave him 45 minutes just to be sure and then trailed him up and sure enough he was there. And uh, you know, I tell you, coming around the juniper on the bull laying there dead, I came up from kind of directly behind him and man, it was real quickly obvious that he was a lot bigger than, I, than we had anticipated. We kind of figured the bull would be like 370, you know, maybe 375 and it was real obvious uh, when I walked up on him that he was definitely better than that. And uh, we ended up taking him out at 
just under 390, just 389 and change girls. And, you know, he's got 20, 22 inch fronts, 20 inch thirds. He's got 54 inch main beams. And he's like a 45 inch inside spread. So just a really cool uh, experience. I couldn't have asked for anything more. I mean, to kill a, a bull that wasn't broke. My dad was there, not right with me, but he was there, you know, shortly after that. And so it just, it was really an awesome, awesome experience. That's fantastic. That's your best bull too, right? Yeah, by far. It's 50 inches bigger than my next bull. And uh, the next day I was able to kind of be there when Randy Yolmer got in on his bull. I wasn't there when he killed it, but I watched him get in on it. And, you know, killing like a 393 bull or 394 straight six, not broken. And I'm just an impressive bull. And to watch Randy work his magic is always fun. Yeah, that's awesome. I've seen that in person before. It's pretty sweet. Um, well, yeah. congratulations. Um, sounds like an awesome hunt. So you guys, um, both you and Nicole killed bulls and your dad killed um, the freezers full at the Rimza household for sure. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We got another elk hunt here coming up in about 10 days for uh, for my son, Jaren. And so we'll see. Uh, it'll have to be a pretty good bull for us to put another one down because we got more than enough elk meat. I want to talk to you about the uh, hunt guideline proposal. Um, the Game and Fish has some deadlines and stuff, and you've been working with them, and you've got a lot of information to share uh, with us. Before we do that, though, I'll, I'll catch you a little bit off guard probably. Um, I had sent you some pictures a couple weeks ago. Uh, so, guys, um, Brian is a uh, official scorer. Uh, I believe Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young, is that right? No, I'm Pope and Young. Okay. They, if you're, if, I have not gotten my Brandon Crockett cert yet. Okay, but you're also um, work with the bow hunter um, of, of Arizona's um, record book, and you score a lot of animals, right? Yes, I do. Okay, so I had sent you those pictures, and it was basically a side view of a whitetail antler and having some discussion as to where is the main beam, where is the mass measurements on each, and then where is the line at which you um, measure each point. And if it makes sense, this particular beam had quite a bit of webbing on it, and I drew some yellow, I didn't, a guy had actually sent it to me, some red lines and some yellow lines and this, that, and the other. You have to go to my Instagram to see the actual picture, but... Um, Talk a little bit about when you're scoring in that in in any antler, but in that particular case, um, how you have your circumference measurements, and then you have the place where you take the point measurement off of the beam, and how you can't get a double measurement. Uh, in other words, you can't get both the circumference that you want and get you know way down in the webbing for your length. Yeah, I think the biggest thing to understand is uh, typically when you're measuring a tine, you're basically measuring to the top of the beam. Uh, so if if that makes sense, is that if it's massively webbed, you're going to get the credit for that webbing in your mass measurements, but you can't get it in your mass measurements and in your length measurements, if that makes sense. So you can't get credit for the same piece of antler twice. And so if it's really webbed, obviously your mass measurements are going to be, you know, much bigger than normal. And, you know, you basically have to envision cutting that tine off at the top of that webbing. There's some tricks of the trade that we use to define that. I mean, but that's the best way I can kind of describe it. 
and just verbally describe it. And I mean, you know, if you have an animal just for say that has webbing on both sides, then it's great because you get the benefits of both or of the mass of both sides. But if you had an animal that was only webbed on one side, then it's kind of a negative drawback because you, you lose some of the deductions from one side to the next. Does that answer the question you were looking to get answered? Yeah, I know it's pretty hard without visual aid when you're just talking about it, but um, in essence, too, if, if you're going to be picturing where would you take the point measurement for everyone out there listening, is a good rule of thumb if you were to, in essence, cut off the point and sand it down completely, and this is kind of the way I envision it, where if you were to cut every single point off and basically have the beam smooth across the top, where yeah, I mean, where that center point of, of of the actual point hits the beam is where you take it, right? I mean, is that a is that a pretty good kind of way to look at it? If you were to saw every point off on a smooth line with the contour of the beam, where that um, top of the beam meets the center of the point is where you would take it, right? Yes, I mean, that's a fairly uh, a good description of it. I mean, it's tough to describe, like you said. But yes, if you basically come down and were to cut the time off right at where it meets the beam, pretty much flush, that's where it would be, at the top of the beam. You don't go down into the beam. It's basically right at the top of the beam is where it would meet. Okay. okay, that was just a little bunny trail that I wanted to... Um, I know a lot of guys are interested in that stuff um let's talk about the uh, az hunt guidelines and some of the information that you've been able to gather and i know you want to get the word out there i think there's some time periods that people can put in their comments um i know it, i know it's you've been working and on behalf of hunters and trying to get this worked out um and getting the word out so why don't you tell us what's going on yeah, so I'm, I'm the chairman in the bo of Bowhunting and Arizona Record Book Committee, which obviously we do the record book for Arizona, and then I'm also on the board for the Arizona Bowhunters Association. And in the spring of 2020, I'm sorry, 2021, you know, the department decided to, to eliminate or change over 30 over-the-counter archery deer hunts because they were concerned about the success rate of archers. And, you know, the department does a great job with the data that they have. And I can, you know, they're, they're there to manage our wildlife and they're doing uh, a really good job. This was kind of a shock to all of us because no one anticipated it coming. And there wasn't much dialogue with the sportsmen's groups about what they were going to do, why they were going to do it. And so it created some, um, it created some animosity between them because, there wasn't a good understanding and there was a better way to do it. When I started this process, I didn't quite understand the difference between hunt guidelines and hunt recommendations. Basically, so that everyone understands, hunt guidelines are set every five years and they establish the parameters in which the department and the commission can change or manage hunt structures in that five years. Within that five-year period, you have hunt recommendations, which take that occur every two years and those recommendations are can be changes to season structures tag allocations but it ha whatever changes are made or recommended during the hunt recommendation period have to be within the hunt guidelines so currently the guideline hunt guidelines period is open for discussion um 
the department, the way it works is the department comes up with recommendations and they provide them to the commission and the commission will typically supports one one of the recommendations made by the department. Occasionally at times they will come up with uh, alternatives of their own. But the thing that's important to note is that I've spent about seven to eight months now uh, working with the department and they've been great. Uh, they brought me into their circle, kind of explained things to me. We've had good dialogue about alternative ways to do things. And I, I do believe there are individuals on the commission, individuals on the department that can recognize kind of the, the value in some of the things that we're proposing. And so what was nice is that on October 28th, the department presented their recommendations to the public via a webcast. You can find the webcast on azgfp.gov. If you type in webcast in the search engine, you can find it there. Uh, it was specific to over-the-counter archery gear and mandatory reporting. And so the three recommendations from the department as far as managing the archery deer hunts, the over-the-counter archery deer hunts, is to maintain the status quo, which is basically keep doing things the things the way we're doing. The issue with that is, is that once the archers exceed 20% of the total harvest of deer in the unit, then the department has to make a decision on whether they're going to close the hunt or move it to a draw. And there's some problems that we're going to talk about the reporting here in a minute, but that doesn't lead itself to a sustained over-the-counter archery deer hunt for the future. And the benefits to this over-the-counter archery deer hunt is that it's the one hunt that everybody can participate in. Every year you can buy a tag and you can go hunting. And I would agree that if we needed to eliminate those hunts, move them all to a draw to protect our wildlife, then we should absolutely do it. But there's a better alternative, and I'm going to get to that um, the, as the third alternative here, and I'll explain it a little bit. The other proposed option from the department is to move every hunt to a draw. The problem with moving every hunt to a draw is that one, it'll cost the department over a million dollars in lost revenue of tax sales. And obviously there's not many organizations, businesses that can afford to give up a million bucks. And it's unnecessary. You don't have to give up that money to maintain the wildlife populations and manage them accordingly. There's some other issues I'm not going to get into with the way that we conduct our draw. They talked about having two draws, which would create two bonus points a year, which would, you know, make bonus point creep even worse. And so there's some other issues that fall into that particular uh, category. So the third recommendation, which is the one I've been working on with them, is to utilize a harvest threshold model. And just to, to paint a picture, basically what that means is that the department would establish, um, they would establish harvest quotas or um, season quotas, just like they're in line. So they would establish that 100 deer can be killed in this unit during this season, and then we can kill 300 deer in a unit within the within the um, all the seasons combined. And the way it would work is that when someone killed a deer, they would have to report that within 48 hours just like we do for bears and lions they would report it either using the new e-tag system that the department's getting ready to come online with or they would report it via phone or they could report it via you know a website when they log in and put their information in so it would capture all the harvest to get immediately and then it would allow the department to shut hunts down once the number of bucks 
had exceeded what they wanted. So it gives you an active management strategy. What we saw in 2020 uh, was an increased number of hunters due to COVID, and we saw an increased drought, which increased archery, archery hunters' success. So by having active management during the season, setting these numbers, it gives you the ability to manage and close hunts during the season when necessary, and it allows you the opportunity to continue to have the hunts um, like we've been having them and offer those opportunities, and it would give them the ability to reopen the hunts that they had closed. So, and plus you don't lose any revenue and you're not cutting out the non-resident participants. So that's kind of the positives to that matter. There are some, you know, negatives or so to say cons to that matter. One of them is, you know, there's a lot of people that have a perception that we need to manage the non-residents participation in over the county archery hunts. I'll tell you that last year, the non-residents accounted for 10.5% of the total counter tags. Well, I mean, we give them 10% in the draw, so it's pretty close to where it's at. I would say that where there is some concern about non-residents is trying to determine how many deer they're actually killing, and, and we know they're kind of focused in certain units. But by having mandatory reporting, knowing who's killing the deer, knowing when they're killing the deer and where they're killing the deer, we would be able to establish that better information to make better decisions moving forward. So with that data, we could definitely you know, determine if we needed to limit the non-resident participation or, or non-resident success. So those are some things that are good there. The department has a hard time with it a little bit because it's a, it requires a, an Article 3 rule change for mandatory reporting. So they'd have to make a rule change that forces people to report. So there's a lot of good in a threshold model and there's a few uh, hurdles to get over, but the reality is it goes into getting better data and making better decisions. And it's interesting because I'm gonna, let's, we're gonna go into mandatory reporting right now. And what's interesting about it is that the department is making these recommendations off of the harvest questionnaire data that, that they get from hunters. And, that, and we all know that's a voluntary program. And last year, the department sold 30,606 over-the-counter archery deer tags. And they sent out 28,637 hunt questionnaires. Of those 28,000 questionnaires, there were 24% of individuals who re returned them, which was 6,952. And what I think is most interesting in this is that of those 6,952 questionnaires that were returned, only 814 people identified themselves as killing a deer. So the data we have is that archers killed 814 deer. And obviously that's limited because there's only 24% reporting, but the department's estimate for last year is that the archers killed 3,654 deer. So my concern and many people's concern is how are you estimating that we killed 3,654 deer when you only got 24% reporting and your reporting only shows that we killed 814 deer? That should be a little concerning to people. And the concern is that the data is there. And back in the 90s, uh, the department this, they thought that the archery hunters were killing in a in an abundant amount of deer on Kaibab. And so they wanted to limit the archers' participation. The archers agreed to pay $5 for a Kaibab habitat stamp to have a, a 
to have a checkpoint, a mandatory physical in-person checkpoint on the Kaibab for the next season to give the department the accurate data. So in essence, they agreed to mandatory reporting. And the department's estimates were 25 to 30% deer being killed by archers. As it turned out, the data showed 10% of the deer were being killed by archers. And the next season, there was no more mandatory reporting because the data didn't support uh, what they were saying. So I'm not saying the department's data is inaccurate, but there is better data out there and more data out there, and we should want all of the data. On top of that, the department did a study in 2019 of five Western states. They basically reviewed five Western states uh, who had gone from mandatory reporting. And it was California, Nevada, New Mexico, Oregon, and Washington. And the interesting thing about this is that all five states indicated that mandatory reporting has worked well for them. And the states acknowledge that good harvest data is required because hunting is a significant cause of mortality for some populations. So this is the Arizona Game and Fish Department's own survey done in 2019 where they confirmed that five Western states that they looked at agreed that mandatory reporting was, was beneficial because hunting, obviously, is a significant cause of mortality for some populations. So their own report shows that we should move that direction. The other thing that I find interesting Brian, in this same your, your earpiece or something is you're oh. moving around or something's happening and it's causing some... Is it better now? Yeah, just... Well, no, I'm hearing tapping. Just whatever you're doing, you're moving around or something. Sorry. Okay, let me know here. Is that better? Go ahead. So the other thing that's interesting in this report is that no state reported a decrease in license or tag sales because of mandatory reporting. Two states said that they saw an increase in license sales and application rates since they implemented mandatory harvest reporting, but they didn't think this was likely a result of mandatory reporting. So one of the biggest arguments that the department has against mandatory reporting, Jay, is that they believe it will impact hunter retention and recruitment. But their own report from 2019 contradicts that statement. And so what I need from sportsmen in Arizona and what I need is I need everyone to send an email before December 10th, which is when the commission's likely to make a decision on what model they're going to use. They need to send an email to the Commission and it, the email is azhuntguidelines at azgfd.gov. I'll link these up in the show notes as well. And they need to send an email just simply stating, you know, that they support mandatory reporting, not just mandatory harvest reporting, but mandatory reporting because we want all the available data. And some of the concerns about mandatory reporting and, and, and is that you have to have a punitive action if you don't report. And I'll tell you, Jay, the simplest way to do it is just like New Mexico and several other Western states. In Arizona, in January, when all of us go to apply for elk and antelope, the portal system will prompt you to complete your, your, uh, your reports. If you don't complete them, you can't apply. That's the simplest method. There's no penalty. There's no fine. It's just if you make a decision not to do it, then you can't 
you can't apply for the draw. And if you combine that with the, the new e-tag system that they're coming out, which hunters will use to tag their deer in the field, I mean, we're going to have some exceptional data, and it will allow us to make better decisions and support those decisions. The other thing I need, you know, those inclined to do so is I need them to also support the harvest threshold model for managing the OTC deer. We need to be able to maintain this, this opportunity in the state, and we can maintain the opportunity, but the commissioners and the department need to know you support it. So if there's anything I can ask of your listeners and the people who listen to this, everybody, before December, I would try to do it before December 1st, but December 10th is the day, please send an email to azhuntguidelines at azgfd.gov, which they will link up in the notes, and just express your support for the harvest threshold model for managing OTC deer and for moving to mandatory reporting for all medium species in Arizona. There's no reason not to have all the available data. And we need to show them that that's what we want. And Brian, just to reiterate, the downside if they don't go with the threshold model is likely they will eliminate the OTC over-the-counter deer hunts and they will go to all draw across the board in most units and no one wants to see that right there is a very high likelihood of that and i mean even your non-resident listeners should pay attention that this this uh harvest threshold model for managing the otc deer gives them the best opportunity to be able to partake in arizona's great hunting opportunities because if they go to a draw the availability of tax for non-residents is going to be limited to none. And it may change over time, and it will change over time. But let's have the data to make the accurate decisions and make the accurate changes. Sounds very reasonable. Um, Brian, how do people get a hold of you if they want to follow up more? So if anybody wants to reach out to me, just send me an email. It's Brian, B-R-I-A-N dot Rimza, R-I-M-S-Z-A at hotmail.com and i can send you some of the supporting data um, if you'd like to look at it yourself if you have questions by all means send me an email i'm on instagram i'm on facebook so you can also reach out to that um, but we're trying to make a difference here and i mean there are some commissioners that are definitely willing to talk and the department's been willing to talk but we need to show the commission and the department what we want so it's great to complain about stuff but this is something that we can all get behind. And you may have a different view on the over-the-counter archery deer tax uh, structure than I do. That's fine. But we should definitely all be able to get behind moving to mandatory reporting for all big-end species in Arizona. The data is there. We need to have it. And it's more important now than ever. Fantastic. Um, you laid it out really well. Uh, I'm going to make sure to link not only the the correct links and emails for them to send, but your email as well in case they need to get a hold of you. Um, I appreciate all the work that you do volunteering, uh, you know, and gathering all this data and talking with the commission, the, the, the uh, game and fish and um, trying to make a difference. Uh, I know it's a, a hot topic right now and I think everybody has an opinion and this is actually a chance for people to do something about it and, and it matters. I agree. Um, Fantastic. Okay, what's on your agenda coming up? It sounds like you've got a late elk hunt. Yeah, I got a late elk hunt with my son and some good friends. It's always a fun hunt. It looks like the weather's not going to be uh, 
too bad this year, knock on wood for right now. And then I have a late December Coosier tag uh, down south. It's I will mention it's ironic that the commission meeting for to discuss the deer initiative is actually on the opening day of archery deer and the opening day of late deer hunts in Yuma of all places. So I'll be down there rather than chasing deer. So well. You're doing good work, my man, um, and getting your master's degree at the same time. Yeah, I'm working through that. Learning how to write papers again at 41 is proven to be a little bit difficult, but I'm struggling through it. Right on, man. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on and, and uh, share the information with us, and it's always great talking to you, and uh, we'll be chatting down the line here, okay? All right. Thanks, Jay. All right, buddy. God bless.